Hi, listeners. This is Effective Altruism 10 Global Problems, a collection of 10 episodes from the 80,000 Hours podcast designed to bring you up to speed on 10 pressing issues the Effective Altruism community is working to solve. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. This episode focuses on preventing pandemics, both natural and engineered, as well as reducing the threat from nuclear weapons. We've been sounding the alarm about pandemics for several years, including making, I think, an eight or nine hour series back in 2017. And sometimes that content has landed on skeptical audiences. Like nuclear wars, pandemics are the kind of thing that people just tend to put out of their minds as a serious possibility. We don't encounter that so much today because COVID-19 has fortunately woken people up to the nature of the biological threats that we face. But unfortunately, this is no time for complacency either, because unless we do something different in the meantime, we're likely to have to deal with a similar or even worse pandemic in the future. We were really fortunate to get to talk to Andy Weber, who for the last 35 years has been one of the most important people in the world when it comes to reducing threats coming from biological, chemical or nuclear weapons. Andy has always been a pretty open and honest guy, but his retirement last year has allowed him to stop worrying about being seen to speak for the Department of Defense or for the President of the United States. And so we were able to get his really forthright views on a bunch of interesting topics, such as the advances in technology that could stop bioweapons and natural pandemics as well, the chances that COVID-19 escaped from a research facility, whether a US president can really truly launch nuclear weapons unilaterally, and what he thinks should be the top priorities for the Biden administration. Andy has also been involved in some wild stories during his career, and he shares a couple of those in this interview. One of them about finding 600 kilograms of unsecured, highly enriched uranium sitting around in a facility in Kazakhstan, and eventually transporting all of it to the United States, is even being made into a Hollywood movie right now. All right, without further ado, here's Andy Weber. Today, I'm speaking with Andy Weber. Most of Andy's last 35 years have been dedicated to reducing the threat from weapons of mass destruction. He played a key role in implementing the 1991 Soviet Nuclear Threat Reduction Act in the mid-90s, helping, among other things, to remove 600 kilograms of highly enriched uranium from Kazakhstan and Georgia. This story was described in the 2010 Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Dead Hand, the untold story of the Cold War arms race and its dangerous legacy, written by David Hoffman. Andy was later the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense Programs from 2009 to 2014, during which time he was the Principal Advisor to the Secretary of Defense on Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense Programs, and oversaw the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, which aims to combat weapons of mass destruction. For all of this work, he has twice been awarded the Exceptional Civilian Service Medal. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Andy. Thank you, Rob. I hope that we're going to get to uh, talk about your experience chasing down nuclear material across the former USSR, as well as how to reduce threats from biological weapons programs. But first, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important to do? Oh, well, right now I'm focused on, on two things, making sure that this is the last pandemic because we don't have to have this again. It's completely preventable. So that's, that's uh, one area of focus. And the other is reducing the threat of nuclear war. Yeah. And I suppose I was next going to ask what defense threats uh, are you most worried about today? But I suppose <laughs> that speaks for itself, that you're worried about, I guess, pandemics and the possibility of nuclear war, either deliberate or accidental. Well, I'm very worried about weapons of mass destruction, but especially biological weapons. I believe that the current situation has exposed a vulnerability and actually... Uh, there are two trends that are increasing the threat of biological weapons. The first is, is just technology. It's making it more accessible. And then the other is obviously uh, this pandemic, this virus has brought our country to its knees and our adversaries are noticing the impact that biological weapons, in this case, it wasn't a weapon, but that biological weapons could have. I mean, imagine if, uh, if instead of 2% of people who 
were infected died, it were 30 or 50 percent. Yeah, and there's no reason why, in principle, that wouldn't be possible because we know there have been pandemics in the past that did have that kind of fatality rate, like the like the Black Death, and I guess uh, smallpox to some to some extent. Exactly, yeah, smallpox had a 30 percent mortality rate. I recently saw that you tweeted that you think the uh, Department of Defense needs to stop its emphasis on preparing to fight uh, World War II style traditional wars. Yeah, to what degree is that still the DOD's focus, uh, kind of mentally and internally, and why do you think that's that's bad? Well, unfortunately, you know, DOD is a very conservative organization. It's very hard to change. It's so large. I mean, it has uh, over 3 million people. So the emphasis of the Trump strategy was on big power competition, especially China and Russia. But that just gave a pretext for what Eisenhower called the defense industrial complex, the big uh, defense contractors, to say that we need more big ships and aircraft carriers and F-35s and joint strike fighters and sort of what I would refer to as Cold War platforms. They're very expensive, but uh, it's hard to cut programs like that. They have a lot of support in Congress because of the jobs, the production of these big platforms uh, provides. It's just very, very hard to uh, focus on the defense needs, the actual defense needs of today. Uh, We're not going to have a big land war with China. I mean, that's absurd to think that we would, but our strategy seems to be uh, to invest in those capabilities. I wanted to, to to help people understand where kind of the whole threat reduction community that you're a part of is coming from, to talk about, yeah, these remarkable efforts to secure a nuclear material after the breakup of the USSR, some of which you were a part of. So yeah, what were the defense threats that you and your colleagues were most worried about in the early to mid-90s? Well, especially when the Soviet Union collapsed, we were very worried about the loose nuke problem. And then the stunning revelations about the scope of the Soviet offensive biological weapons program caused a lot of concern. But what changed was we were no longer worried about the Soviet attack on the United States. We were worried about uh, weakness and loss of control of the, the weapons, the materials, and the expertise, the scientists involved in these programs, perhaps being attracted to uh, rogue states like North Korea and Iran. Later on, I'm going to ask how it is that the whole situation didn't blow up in our face, because uh, it's kind of surprising to me. But let's go through it bit by bit. How did you yeah, end up first finding out that there were these notorious 600 kilograms of unsecured, highly enriched uranium sitting around in a kind of barely secured facility in, in Kazakhstan? Oh, well, that was a story that was told in the dead hand, and it's being made into a Hollywood movie. Oh, uh, really? But um, <laughs> One yeah, of my questions was, but, when was this going to be adapted for Netflix? I didn't realize it already was, effectively. <laughs> well, it's, 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 in, uh, it's in process. But I, um, it actually um, it started when my auto mechanic asked me. He knew I worked at the embassy. He asked me one day if I was interested in buying some uranium. And uh, at that time, you know, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, I was recently assigned to our embassy in this new country of Kazakhstan, in the original capital of Almaty. And, um, you know, anything was possible. Strange things were happening at that time. So I didn't just dismiss it out of hand. And I spent several months following up on that initial lead. Yeah, I've heard the... uh... The saying when your cab driver starts asking you about Bitcoin or real estate, then, then you know you're in a bubble and need to get out. I suppose if, you're, if your cab driver starts asking you about whether you want to buy uranium, then you know, I guess you know you have a different problem of, problem of a different sort. <laughs> yeah, 
and and frankly, there was a, a lot of disbelief when I reported this back to Washington. But over time, we were able to verify that indeed they had over 600 kilograms of 90% enriched uranium sitting in a warehouse in northeastern Kazakhstan. Did the U.S. end up getting scammed a bunch of times? I suppose some people noticed that it was possible to potentially get a lot of attention just by claiming that there was unsecured weapons somewhere and then potentially someone would pay you off just because just they were so nervous about the, about the situation. Was that a common, a common issue? No, I mean, there were a lot of scams. The U.S. government was very careful, though, not to um, become embroiled in, in any of these scams, which is why we worked very carefully to transition this from a sort of a black market deal over to a, a secret government-to-government project. Yeah, is it possible to lay out kind of how dangerous the situation was with this material? Like what plausibly could have happened with, you know, greater than 1% probability? Not, not a tail risk, but like a, a realistic scenario. Oh, well, you know, we're concerned about Iran having an enrichment capability, which is a large industrial capability. But had they bought this material, they would have enough for several dozen bombs right away. They wouldn't have to go through all the process of uh, enriching uranium. This was directly weapons usable material. What were the main challenges that you faced getting it out? I mean, so you mentioned the suspicion from Washington, but I imagine possibly also the Kazakh government, having been part of the USSR just very recently, might not have been so keen to work with the US. And I guess there was transport and like risk from handling it, risk from it perhaps getting stolen from you on, on route. Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of risks. I think the biggest risk uh, we felt was that if we lost the secrecy, then the material would become vulnerable especially when we had people on the ground packaging the material. We didn't want the bad guys, whether it's uh, organized crime or operatives from other countries, to know that we were loading this material, which was definitely most vulnerable when it was mobile, when it was loaded onto trucks in preparation for the convoy to the airport. Yeah, I guess so people realize it took a long time to identify all of these materials and then pack them safely because it was all just all kinds of different things strewn across this facility. And I guess you also have to be very careful to not let too much of it get too close, because then that can itself cause a chain reaction and lead to a very dangerous, dangerous situation. So it was several months that you spent kind of identifying it all and figuring out how to package it safely to, to send it to the US, right? Right. So in February of 1994, we met secretly with President Nazarbayev across the street from the White House, where he was staying at Blair House and obtained his agreement to allow me and uh, another technical expert from the U.S. Weapons Laboratories to secretly visit this facility in Uskamenogorsk, Kazakhstan, to verify the existence of, of this uh, highly enriched uranium. And when we first entered the storage room, which was protected by a good padlock, the buckets, the different stainless steel containers filled with uranium were spread out along a very large sort of plywood table off the floor. And they were spread out in order to avoid uh, criticality issues. So we, yes, you, you don't want to have too much of this material uh, concentrated in one place. I'm kind of surprised that you were able to keep it a secret because it seems like in order to do this, well, you would, you would have had dozens, I guess, possibly hundreds of people coordinating on it to some degree on the US team, but then also dozens of people must have known about it in Kazakhstan. And you wouldn't really know exactly who is trustworthy and who isn't inside the Kazakhstani government. And I assume there's substantial amounts of corruption, especially at that time, just after the Soviet Union had collapsed and 
there's lots of issues of people not getting paid. And so they were interested in selling this material or just work, walking off the job because there wasn't money to, to pay the military or the people who were meant to be securing these facilities. How did you manage to, to keep things under wraps so effectively? Well, I think it'd be much harder today with, with the, the internet and email and et cetera. But back then, uh, it was pre-email. <laughs> and um, so, again, because both countries recognize the importance of keeping this secret in order to keep the operation secure, the number of people who knew about it initially was very, very small. Um, we worked with really only three people in the government of Kazakhstan, including the president, uh, were directly involved in the discussions. And then as we went operational and deployed the team, obviously the people at the factory knew what was going on. But remember, they were in a formerly secret military city of the Soviet Union. So secrecy was in their culture. They knew not to talk to people. That's interesting. You know, we were concerned that the media would learn about it. And indeed, somebody in Washington on the National Security Council staff couldn't help himself and talk to a New York Times reporter. And this was right before we were getting ready to fly the material to the United States. So we asked them for national security purposes to hold the story for a couple of days and that we would give them an exclusive once the material was safely in the United States. And they agreed to do that. That's very interesting that uh, I guess you might have thought that the loose side would be the Kazakhstani side because you wouldn't be able to control them and you don't know who's trustworthy. But I guess the U.S. just being a, a more open society in a sense and people being more willing to talk about stuff. In fact, maybe the, the bigger problem was, was on the U.S. side, even though you kind of had this whole infrastructure of people who you thought could keep things classified. Yeah, so definitely the, the concern about leaks was more focused on the U.S. side. But it was extremely tightly held until we were actually getting ready for the press conference that was to be held once the operation was completed. We had simultaneous press conferences in Kazakhstan and at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. So then the circle of people in the government at the White House grew a little bit towards the end, and that's when it leaked. I guess, yeah, to, to cut a long story short, you ended up successfully airlifting it all in these, uh, some, like some of the largest planes in the world did maybe their longest ever flights directly from Kazakhstan to the United States. And I guess you had to keep it secret even after the material had landed in the, in, in the US. Were there any problems with the operation? It seems like it was basically a complete success in, in the end. Yes, it was successful. There were some hurdles we had to overcome. So you mentioned the, the C-5 Galaxy uh, aircraft. On the flight back, they were not allowed to land anywhere. They couldn't overfly any country's territory because of the cargo. So I believe there were four aerial refuelings uh, en route. It was the longest flight that the aircraft had ever taken, literally halfway around the planet from Ustanagorsk, uh, Kazakhstan to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. What route did they take? I guess they went west across the Atlantic? Yeah, they went mostly over water, so Black Sea, over the Black Sea, over the Caspian, the Black Sea, then through the Mediterranean, over Gibraltar, and then over the Atlantic. So it was, uh, I think we called it wet feet. Right. (laughs) Um, Was there any worry about the possibility of the planes crashing? I I don't know how standard it is to have these, them doing such long flights that they're doing four aerial refuelings. Maybe that's like common practice, but... uh... You'd have to worry about them actually crashing somewhere, right? And then the material getting spread all over the place. Or, yeah, I, I, I don't know whether that's how dangerous the situation that would be. Well, I, I think the riskier issue was uh, the airfield in Uskamenegorsk, Kazakhstan, wasn't really built 
to handle aircraft of this size. So, you know, when they landed, I was on the ground uh, to welcome the first uh, aircraft because we didn't have any U.S. Air Force controllers on the ground. So I was in the, the tower at the airport helping guide the plane in because nobody in the tower spoke English. And so they would tell me in Russian what to tell the the pilot, and, and I would, uh, you know... You just translate. And, it, it translate <laughs> and, and, and talk to him uh, directly on the, uh, on the radio. And so yeah. watching these uh, big planes land was really uh, something. And... Uh, but, you know, they were able to land. And then the other big challenge was on departure. We were in a race against winter, and winter starts early in that part of the world. It's just over the border from Siberia. And on the night we had the uh, convoy from the factory to the airport, there was uh, snow and black ice on the roads. And these trucks loaded up with the HEU were sliding. I was in the, the lead vehicle with the head of security for the operation. And uh, I was just dreading, you know, to have to report to Washington via satellite uh, telephone that one of the trucks had slid off the bridge into the Irtish River and was floating down. But luckily, they know how to drive in these conditions. We made it to the airport. And then there was another challenge with our aircraft and and the ice. These uh, C-5 galaxies have a very high tail wing and uh, the de-icing equipment at the airport couldn't reach it. And uh, so that was a big concern. We were able to get a hook and ladder fire truck from downtown to come out to the airport and they were able to uh, reach the tails for de-icing. So you also helped get uranium out of Georgia and from what I've read, some nuclear-ready warheads out of Moldova, but I haven't seen as much written about those two stories. What's the outline of, of those? Oh, well, Georgia was sort of a mini Operation Sapphire. We were very concerned. They had a research reactor that had uh, some spent fuel, but also some highly enriched uranium in the form of uh, fresh fuel rods that would be usable in nuclear weapons. So we're also concerned because the president of Georgia at the time, Shevardnadze, there was an assassination attempt on his life, on his motorcade. So we figured we better get this material out of Georgia. And so I spent about a month in uh, Tbilisi, Georgia, with uh, 50 U.S. Marines and a team from the Department of Energy packaging this material and getting it ready for transport. But because of the uh, security situation there, you know, we uh, spent a lot of effort of making sure that the route was protected, that we had a good secure convoy with uh, armored personnel carriers and the like. Yeah. Was it difficult to uh, get permission to, I guess, send, I suppose, U.S. security personnel into what was previously the Soviet Union? How much reluctance was there to, to let people like you in? Or, or were the governments here like sufficiently worried about the situation themselves that they were happy to do what it took to, to fix it? <laughs> it's, it's funny. Uh, it almost seems quaint right now after uh, 20 years of forever wars. But the biggest problem was the U.S. State Department didn't want to allow our Marines to be armed in country. But the commander of uh, U.S. forces in Europe uh, insisted that they be armed in order to protect themselves and and the material. And so we worked out an agreement and and we were armed and had good security, but we worked very well with the special uh, mission unit of the Georgian security services. They were fantastic and they loved working together with us. Yeah. And what was the the situation uh, with Moldova? 
So Moldova, a country the size of Rhode Island, had inherited, upon the breakup of the Soviet Union, a fleet of uh, MiG-29 aircraft. But they were the Soviet domestic version, not the Warsaw Pact version that countries like Poland and East Germany had. And they were nuclear capable. They were wired for nuclear weapons. And we were very concerned because Iran was trying to buy them. Of course, a country the size of Rhode Island had no need for these advanced fighter jets. And um, the government said to us, well, nobody else, you know, what, what are we supposed to do with these aircraft? And we, we were very interested in obtaining them, first of all, to preempt uh, Iran's acquisition, but also because of the technology that was on those aircraft. And so we negotiated a secret deal with the government of Moldova to buy all of them. We bought 21 MiG-29 aircraft and 507 air-to-air missiles and all the spare parts and all the documentation. And we moved them to to the United States in a secret airlift that lasted uh, nearly three weeks. I'm kind of surprised that some of these countries didn't put up more of a fight maybe to, to keep these materials. I guess, guess we've seen lately that Ukraine has suffered from ultimately deciding to give up its nuclear weapons. I mean, it was given security guarantees, but those haven't, haven't panned out. Did any of these former Soviet states you know, seriously consider, well, why don't, why don't we just keep all of these weapons? And that could be uh, you know, potentially useful in, in, in future in some situation that we don't yet envisage. Well, besides Russia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine had large numbers of nuclear weapons on their territory when they became independent. And I think of the three, Ukraine was the most difficult. They did seriously consider hanging on to them. And so it was diplomacy combined with the resources of the Nunn-Luger Cooperative Threat Reduction Program that allowed us to negotiate with Ukraine to give up those weapons and allow them to be sent to Russia. Yeah, how did you feel seeing Crimea being annexed from Ukraine, knowing, I guess, that there was this long discussion in the 90s about people trying to guarantee Ukraine that, that it would be secure, even if it gave up its nuclear nuclear weapons, and I guess that not panning out after a couple of decades? Well, it was outrageous. I mean, we hadn't seen anything like that kind of a, a grab, territorial grab since World War II in Europe. So it was outrageous. But, you know, we also saw the attack on Georgia in 2008. So Russia can can lash out in a very aggressive way. Yeah, we'll come back to, to issues with Russia today uh, later on. These were a handful of operations in what was a, a much larger project. How much material and how much kind of, I guess, risky people and risky uranium and, and other, other weapons were ultimately secured across the former USSR using, using methods like this? Most of it was either destroyed or secured in place. I mean, this was a decades-long effort funded mostly by the U.S. Defense Department to help them destroy these materials, missiles, and also to build secure facilities to make sure that the material would be protected. So this went on, but the, the, the amount of materials that were secured and weapons that were destroyed including chemical weapons, nuclear weapons dismantled, SS-18 missiles cut up. I mean, it was just in the thousands. It was an amazing effort to help our former adversary eliminate the legacy of the Soviet Union. 
So I guess, yeah, this brings me to maybe the biggest question I have about this whole program, which is like, why was it so successful? I, I kind of can't comprehend how more of these materials didn't end up in the hands of terrorist groups or or rogue states, because there was just so much of it across so many different locations. And as you said, it took decades, in fact, to secure it all, because uh, there was so much work to do, moving it, destroying it, securing it. it, it, it I, I'm just like, I'm just so confused. <laughs> is it possible that some of it did get out and was sold, we just haven't seen it yet? Or... Uh, Maybe not as many people were interested in buying this material as as we as we thought at the time. Well, I mean, this is a prevention program, right? And so you don't get credit for the catastrophe that didn't happen, but it is an extraordinary story. I mean, it was the vision of Senators Richard Luger and Sam Nunn that created this program, gave it to the Pentagon to run. I mean, at first the Pentagon was a little reluctant to be involved in working with uh, with Russia on this problem, but The reason it was so successful, indeed the the genius of this program, was that it facilitated work directly with the custodians of these weapons and materials. There was some negotiations in the Capitol with the foreign ministry, but for the most part, we worked in very remote locations at these WMD facilities and bases throughout Russia and and the neighboring countries, but directly with the engineers and the uh, security forces who guarded them, and the people who felt a responsibility to protect them. So that was the genius, and that's why we were so successful, because it was a full partnership with our our counterparts in those countries. So is it kind of correct that basically you guys succeeded every time, and I suppose Iran and al-Qaeda failed in every instance to, to buy this material? I guess it suggests maybe that yeah, the custodians were just not, in fact, interested in selling it to those to those groups that they saw that that was extremely dangerous and could blow back on them, or maybe they, they were just against it getting out to, to anyone who would want, actually want to use it. Well, they were desperate in the 90s. I mean, their, the economic distress was, was, was grave, but uh, we offered an alternative. I mean, we, you know, one example, we worked with the laboratory in Siberia called Vector that developed smallpox Ebola, Marburg virus as uh, biological weapons. And the Iranians were targeting that facility for for the pathogens themselves, for some of the technologies they developed to uh, produce them and and weaponize them, and um, also were inviting scientists to come teach courses in Tehran. So we offered an alternative. So you can work with the United States European scientists on peaceful joint research on new vaccines and therapeutics for infectious disease, or you can continue your engagement with Iran, but you need to make a choice. And given that choice, given that choice and the financial support we were able to provide, they wanted to work with us. Yeah, so I guess you were more credible and you bid higher, (laughs) among other things. And I guess also they probably just preferred you ideologically, even despite perhaps some differences. Yeah, there was a lot of respect. You know, we had been adversaries so long that that they had a real respect for us. And many of them, you know, had been spent their lives in these secret cities, had never met Americans, obviously, or or any foreigners. And they were um, curious about us, uh, intrigued by us. And and at the end of the day, you know, there was that respect that comes from working on these, you know, very dangerous programs and between scientists. There was a, a common language that we were able to reach. 
What about the program to, I guess, secure people with dangerous knowledge? I know after World War II, there was a huge effort, I guess, from the US and also the USSR to try to get as many German scientists, uh, nuclear scientists and uh, weapon scientists to join them as, as quickly as possible. Was there a similar project to get as many, you know, Soviet physicists to move to, to the US so that they couldn't potentially end up working on programs that you wouldn't want them to? Well, there were some, some programs to facilitate uh, emigration to the United States and Europe. But for the most part, the strategy was to provide support so, so they could uh, live with dignity and, and stay uh, in their homes, in their own country and, and in their own towns. And, and so the emphasis was really on making it possible for them to continue to get paid doing the um, you know, peaceful work, not, not weapons work, or even dismantling weapons. I mean, another you know, profound example for me was the uh, anthrax factory in Stepnogorsk, Kazakhstan. It was the world's largest biological weapons factory. You can't imagine the scale. I mean, it was uh, built to produce and load onto weapons aimed at the United States. 300 metric tons of anthrax agent in about an eight-month uh, mobilization period. But the, uh, the people who built this, this horrible, really evil factory in violation of the Biological Weapons Convention, they worked with us. They actually did the dismantlement. Their engineers and, and scientists ensured that it was done safely, but they did it on direct contract with the Department of Defense of the United States. Indeed, it became their livelihood when they finished destroying, safely destroying the main fermentation building, they said, well, can we also dismantle this other building? I mean, so it generated a, a momentum of its own. It was really extraordinary, but it was the, uh, they had some regret, obviously. They had great pride in having built and operated this facility, but because of the economic situation, and you know, once they, they sort of learned that this program was illegal, that the United States didn't have a similar program, then they... Um, you know, came around and, and put those same energies and talents to destroying these weapons of mass destruction. Speaking of bioweapons, let's let's move on from, yeah, efforts to secure Soviet material uh, back in the 90s and 2000s to the present day. Because one thing we haven't talked about much on the show before in the, I guess, the, the 90, 100 episodes that we've had is bioweapons programs, even though they are quite concerning. What is the nature of the threat from bioweapons programs? Well, bioweapons, you know, developed during the Cold War by the United States until Nixon canceled our program in 1969, and then the Soviet Union right up until the collapse, were potentially equally devastating to nuclear weapons. They were called the poor man's atomic bomb. It's easier for a country to develop biological weapons than it is to develop nuclear weapons. So it's essentially the use of infectious disease as a weapon, and uh, this could be devastating. You know, there are different types of diseases with different effects, but the ability to deliver them against a population or on a battlefield or to an individual makes them really an insidious type of weapon. Yeah. How large was the threat in the 80s and 90s? Well, in the 80s and 90s, the primary threat came from the Soviet Union. They grew their program. When the ink was drying in 1975, on the Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention. That's when they upped their investment in this program, knowing that the United States no longer had one. They sought an advantage. At one point, they had about 50, 60 facilities working on their biological weapons program. 
40 or 50,000 scientists and engineers. It was a massive, massive effort. And uh, thankfully, they never used them. And uh, yeah, how large is the, is the threat today, do you think? The threat is different today, but it's probably greater. And I say that because the technology has advanced. You know, the Soviet program applied sort of rudimentary molecular biology in ways to make viruses and bacteria more effective as weapons. But now the tools are much easier to use, more precise. So you can enhance the, the virulence, the uh, transmissibility, the environmental hardiness of pathogens in a way that just wasn't possible back then. So I'm very, very concerned today that uh, especially uh, North Korea, which we know a lot about their missile and nuclear weapons programs, but they have an advanced biological weapons program. I'm concerned that Russia still continues elements of its biological weapons program on a much smaller scale, but you don't need a lot of biological weapons to kill potentially millions of people. I know bits and pieces of the history of the Soviet biological weapons program, but maybe I'll say those and then you can perhaps fill in some gaps. As I understand it, in the early Cold War, kind of the US and USSR both had pretty substantial biological weapons programs. And then you were saying in the 70s, they signed an agreement to close them down. And the US, interestingly, did close them down. I think that the Soviets thought that the US probably would continue doing it secretly. But in fact, <laughs> Nixon and maybe others did just decide to, to shut down the biological weapons program. And maybe they weren't sure what the USSR was doing. But the USSR continued, in fact, like scaled up its biological weapons program. And if I recall correctly, was it, was it Gorbachev who said that allowing the, their biological weapons program to continue was his greatest regret or the, or the worst thing that he ever did? But I think the military threatened to basically overthrow him if he, if he got rid of the biological weapons program. Or either way, there was a lot of political power that that group had, which made them hard to shut down. Is that kind of a, a, a good outline? Yeah. The Soviet biological weapons program was the greatest intelligence failure, Western intelligence failure of the Cold War. We missed it. It wasn't really until the first defector came out to the United Kingdom in uh, 1989 that we began to learn about the scope and sophistication of their illegal bioweapons programs. Yeah, it's, it's kind of surprising that you're saying that they had tens of thousands of people working on this program, and yet it never leaked. It's just incredibly effective secrecy. Yeah, it was extraordinary. Um, they had whole, you know, it was like an onion, right? Different layers, uh, some were indirectly involved in their bioweapons program. For example, the anti-plague system, which collected pathogens from you know, fleas and rodents. But then the most uh, virulent ones were selected and then sent into the, the biological weapons research and development facilities. So you had layers and layers, but at its core, it was a, a military program, a strategic program intended to be used as a strategic weapon against the United States and NATO. Yeah. How much has been successfully done to get rid of these kind of programs or at least shrink what they're up to if a country wasn't willing to give them up completely? Who's, who's still at it today? Other than, I guess you mentioned there's some, some research in Russia and uh, North Korea probably has, has a decent program. Yeah. North Korea has an advanced biological weapons program. And what worries me about North Korea is they're more likely to use biological weapons than nuclear weapons, because if they use the nuclear weapon, it's over, right? If they use a biological weapon and deliver it covertly through you know, secret operatives anywhere in the world, in Malaysia, where they used VX against uh, Kim Jong-un's brother in a successful assassination attempt. Now, that was a chemical weapon, but 
you know, wherever wherever North Koreans have a diplomatic presence, they could launch uh, biological weapons attacks covertly. And in a way, perhaps that's a little bit deniable that maybe they would never get caught for doing it. So I think they're more likely to do that than to use the nuclear weapon, which would have a home address. Is there anyone else we need to, to have in mind? Who else actually has programs at the moment? Well, North Korea and, and our concerns about Russia continue. There were three military biological facilities that we were never allowed to visit that we are concerned that they're still working on biological weapons today. Indeed, just last year, they were sanctioned by the U.S. government. But we have some concerns about China. And I'm concerned that because of the success of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, that countries that hadn't considered biological weapons will now be thinking about them. Okay. So I think a core question that people, including me, might have is just why would a country want to have a biological weapons program, perhaps except for North Korea as a deterrence? But it seems like it's kind of crazy because as we've seen with COVID, if you release a disease anywhere, it kind of ends up everywhere. And so if the Soviet Union had had ever actually used most of these biological weapons, at least the ones that are contagious, which are kind of naturally the ones that we're most concerned about, then it's just going to end up decimating their own population, perhaps at a delay of weeks or months. But it seems like it's kind of a mutually assured destruction thing. And I guess on top of that, with the Soviet Union, they already had all the nukes. They already had a very strong deterrence against being attacked. So it's just very hard to see, like, what is the strategic position that biological weapons play in in defending a country? Well, for a country that has nuclear weapons, it really is madness to also develop biological weapons. But for a country that can't afford the investment, you know, into nuclear weapons, biological weapons offers a shortcut a cheap, easy way to do it, and in a way that's deniable. And, you know, the example of Iraq is, is interesting. They, they did have a, a pretty good biological weapons program in the early 90s. And then when we went in in 1991, we disrupted it and the UN shut it down. It was completely eliminated by 1996. But, you know, they didn't have a nuclear weapon. So they wanted their uh, neighboring countries to think that they had a biological weapons program. They hinted at it. They had that ambiguity, and they thought that was a, a deterrent. I guess given that, why haven't more countries developed biological weapons programs? I guess a country like Iran might be kind of a candidate that would be interested in the same way that, that North Korea is. Well, the world has been lucky. I mean, we have the Biological Weapons Convention. We, you know, we do try to shine a, a sunlight on, you know, as a disinfectant on, on the covert programs that we learn about. But it is... Uh, it's a success. It's a global success that the norm against biological weapons has generally been effective and uh, more countries are not pursuing them. Why did the Soviet Union keep its program, given that it was kind of a threat to the country itself because they could accidentally get out and it wasn't really playing any strategic role in preventing the Soviet Union from being invaded? Was it just some kind of peculiar internal politics where some people were getting jobs that they liked out of it or was there misunderstanding? Well, no, they definitely saw military utility in it. And, and there are different kinds of biological weapons, ranging from incapacitating agents that just make everybody sick and unable to fight on a battlefield, to there are non-contagious biological weapons like anthrax. It does not spread human to human. So you could launch a large-scale anthrax attack on a city and kill hundreds of thousands of people without risking any blowback on your population. And then the distances. I, I think they felt that if they used bombers or 
intercontinental ballistic missiles to deliver biological weapons against the United States, then it wouldn't work its way back to the Soviet Union. Okay, so they would be able to cut off, cut it off at the borders and, and it wouldn't necessarily come back. Was that a foolish belief? Or? Well, we weren't as interconnected back then, right? The, the air, air travel and, and the, the communications links were not as, as well developed in the, in the 60s, 70s, and the 80s as they are today. I think today, use of bio, a contagious biological weapon anywhere in the world would uh, risk uh, spreading everywhere, as we've seen with COVID-19. But that doesn't mean that having a highly contagious biological weapon in your inventory isn't something that countries wouldn't want to want to have, even given that risk. Just because it terrifies everyone else? Exactly. I see. So it just makes them really nervous to, to irritate you because they don't know what you're going to do or they don't know what might happen right. if, your, if your country collapses, say, or if the government changes because then they could fall into the wrong hands and so they just leave you alone. Yep. Interesting. So... Given that countries, even including North Korea, probably wouldn't wouldn't want to use these weapons except in very peculiar circumstances, is the most likely way for them to end up doing a lot of damage being released accidentally, perhaps? Or, you know, say there's a war or destabilization for some other reason and then and then they, they get out? Well, there have been accidental releases. In nineteen seventy-nine in what's now Yekaterinburg, Russia, it was called Sverdlovsk at the time. There's a military, one of those three military biological weapons facilities that I mentioned, that uh, one of the workers didn't replace a filter correctly, and a significant amount of anthrax was released into the into the city, and well over a hundred people were killed in that instance. So accidents do happen. Yeah. Why would a country want to use anthrax when they could just use a chemical weapon? Is it, is it just that it's fatal with like very, like it can kill a lot of people with a relatively tiny amount of the, of the substance? Right. So chemical weapons are, are bulky and, and they, they act immediately. But, you know, the amount of chemical weapons that you would have to deliver to kill a million people, it's just, it's unwieldy. Whereas a kilogram of anthrax would do, would do that for you. If it's dispersed in an aerosol in a densely populated area, you only have to get a little bit into your lungs to get infected. And so there are millions of spores released into the atmosphere can kill just an extraordinary number of people. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes sense. I guess maybe this is a silly question, but given all of this, why did the U.S. actually follow its agreement and, and dismantle its biological weapons program? Was it just was it a matter of honor or did the U.S. see less of a strategic role for biological weapons in, in defending its interests? You know, I've actually talked to some of the people who are now in their 90s who were involved in, in those decisions in 1969 when President Nixon got rid of the U.S. biological weapons program. It was a combination of things, but mostly it was concern that biological weapons would spread to other countries, that more countries would pursue them. And we thought that if we signed a convention prohibiting them and then got all the countries of the world to join in that, that it would um, make it less likely that countries would pursue biological weapons. And indeed, that was generally effective with one huge exception, was the Soviet Union's violation, flagrant violation. Is there any case for not worrying that much about my weapons? That they sound pretty bad, but is there anything you can say to, <laughs> that maybe makes the picture seem a bit less scary? Yeah, I'm actually, yeah, maybe, maybe it doesn't come through, but I'm an optimist by nature, you know, sort of a pragmatic optimist. And I think we can take the whole class of biological weapons off the table. And we're doing work on this at the Council on Strategic Risks. 
But we have a program called Making Bioweapons Obsolete. And you know, at the end of the day, biological weapons are just infectious disease, right? So you can have a, a system of early warning, detection, and then rapid uh, medical countermeasures that would give you such good defenses against biological weapons that you could deter your adversaries from pursuing biological weapons because they, they would realize they wouldn't be effective. Now, we're, we're not there yet, but the science and the tools that are now available can enable this possibility of making bioweapons obsolete. And so we think that's the right vision. Okay, yeah, fantastic. I'm, I'm super curious. Can you maybe just go through some of the technologies that you're most excited about that, that could potentially make bioweapons obsolete? Absolutely. So it starts with early warning. So think about some of the uh, revolution in diagnostics and testing that's been happening because of COVID and during the COVID pandemic. So imagine in-home testing. You know, every morning when you brush your teeth, you, you breathe into a tube and, and you know if, if you're infected with, with a virus and it tells you which one. You know, that's sort of the early detection that's now possible. You might have it hooked up to your smartphone and it would report into a public health surveillance system. And so you would know if it's just an isolated individual or if it's spreading into the community. So that, you know, that early warning piece and then sequencing is becoming so cheap and fast that you can, within 24 hours, you can determine if a person has a respiratory illness, for example. You can test through sequencing for 300 different pathogens that cause that, as well as virus X, the unknown, the novel. And um, those are the sorts of capabilities that we need to have that, that weather map that prediction of infectious disease outbreaks that allows us to nip them in the bud. So I know that sequencing technology has gotten a lot cheaper. And I've heard people talk about, you know, at every hospital or medical facility, you could have one of these little like nanopore sequences, and then you can take lots of samples and see if you're getting, you know, DNA results or sequence results that you don't recognize. And that would set off alarm bells because it's like, oh, this is something new. We need to look into it. Hold on. How, how would you do this at home? You're saying you would blow into something at home and this would be cheap enough and it would be able to tell all of the, all of the, all of the viruses that you had going around in your, in your respiratory tract? That's amazing. Right. So, so those capabilities that, that you're talking about that a hospital laboratory might have today, they're getting smaller, cheaper, easier to use. So it's just a matter of time before um, they're available for use at home. But we also have already for COVID many uh, in-home tests that are are now approved for emergency use by our uh, FDA. Even just in the last few months, there have been some new ones that are um, being purchased by the government. We have a a several hundred million dollar contract with an Australian company called Illum that produces an an in-home test. So, I I mean, I think there's also a demand for it, right? You want to know before you send your child off to daycare that he or she is healthy. I guess maybe even more than that, you want to know what the other kids at the daycare have. Exactly, right. And, and, and the teachers want to know that too. So this type of monitoring, screening, is now possible today. But what we need to do is, is invest more in it and then to uh, connect them into a system so it's not just fragmented information being collected, that you get the overall weather map, the total picture for infectious disease everywhere in the world. And, uh, you know, real-time information sharing is, is going to be key to that. Is a potential weakness here that if someone really wanted to do a lot of damage, couldn't they release these diseases into 
very poor places in the world where this technology is not going to be in every household anytime soon. And then they could spread a whole lot before they, they got to rich enough countries where they might be contained, but then they would still do a, do a lot of damage. Well, that's why we need to invest in these capabilities everywhere in the world, because an outbreak anywhere is a threat to the whole world. So that's why in 2014, the United States led a, a huge diplomatic effort to create what was called the Global Health Security Agenda, which uh, has now grown to include over 70 countries and international organizations to enhance the capabilities of every involved country to detect and respond to infectious disease outbreaks. Yeah, I guess uh, even if you can't protect every country, it would still mean that the the number of use cases for countries actually applying these weapons would be much shrunk because they wouldn't be able to, you know, do a targeted attack on, on one particular country if that country had these defensive capabilities. Yeah, and I, actually, day to day, the poorer countries need these capabilities even more because they're suffering day to day from more infectious disease than we do in the West. A, a side benefit, if you can call it that, of this kind of technology, if it was scaled up everywhere, is that it's the kind of thing that would have caught COVID-19 early enough to perhaps contain it. Actually, while we're on that, if we had this technology that could stop bioweapons, I guess that would actually basically be good enough to stop natural pandemics as well. Because if anything, the bioweapons are going to be more difficult to contain because they've been designed for that purpose, whereas the, the natural ones, are it's only by accident that they kind of happen. That's exactly right. And that's why making this investment now is so important and so beneficial. It not only would it protect us from biological weapons threats, it would protect us from routine infectious disease and prevent pandemics and epidemics from happening in the first place. Yeah. So that was the early detection, which is kind of, I guess, sequencing initially at hospitals and labs and spreading it out. And then I guess eventually that the dream would be in every home every day. What are the latest stages? And what are some other technologies? Well, again, enabled by sequencing, look at the example of uh, Chinese laboratory posted the SARS-CoV-2 sequence, I believe, on January 11th. Within days, a company supported by DARPA called Moderna in Boston developed this mRNA vaccine prototype. And then it was in, uh, in phase one trials just a little over a month later. So using sequences, we can have what I call rapid medical countermeasures, therapeutics and vaccines that are based on the sequence of the pathogen and can be developed and then manufactured quickly. Think sort of nucleic acid uh, 3D printers that could use this digital information because biology is now digital and uh, develop and produce these vaccines in a distributed way. So we would, as soon as even a novel or previously unknown pathogen were released, we would in days or you know a month at the most have a countermeasure that we can apply to preventing it. So these are the capabilities, well, even 10, 15 years ago may have seemed like science fiction. Today, they're upon us. But we need to invest in this overall system of defenses. Yeah, just, just to explain to people there, I guess it seems like in the past, most vaccines have had this kind of boutique element where it's you, you create the, you like have to manufacture them, it's quite cumbersome, then you test whether they work, and then actually scaling up to be able to produce any specific vaccine is really hard. And I guess a benefit of mRNA vaccines, as I understand it, is that you can very quickly go from the RNA or DNA sequence of the pathogen to, uh, you know, I guess you, you take that, and you, you do some work on the computer quite quickly, and then you're like, all right, we already have mRNA vaccines. Here's the code that we're going to put in the mRNA vaccine. Here's the code that we're going to uh, put inside these little fat droplets that then is going to cause your own body to produce these proteins that will then inspire the appropriate immune response. 
And so I guess you can go much faster potentially from discovering a new thing to having a vaccine against it. Yeah. I mean, this time it was 10 months because we had never really fully proven them in humans before going all the way through phase three trials like we have now. But next time it will be much faster. And linking back to the Soviet Biological Weapons Program, there's a reason the Department of Defense invested in the capability like the mRNA vaccines. It's simple. We knew the Soviet Union had been applying bioengineering to its weapons program. So that meant we couldn't just worry about a list of known pathogens. It meant we had to worry about a created pathogen, perhaps a, a chimera, a hybrid pathogen that had the worst property, properties of several viruses combined. So that meant that we might face a total unknown. And so we needed a capability to sequence it, to characterize it, and then develop the countermeasure. And it's exactly that reason that the Defense Department invested in what we call these, these rapid response or platform technologies. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> Recently, I've been, I've been tweeting saying that, as far as I can see, we just want to have an enormous vaccine manufacturing capacity on standby at all times for mRNA vaccines and I guess for, for other methods as well. It's obvious even now, just with COVID-19, because we could have new variants that are thrown up that are able to evade the vaccines that we have already, that people have already received, in which case we're going to have to go back and create a new variant vaccine to tackle that variant of COVID. And then we want to be able to vaccinate everyone again with the new, with the new variant as quickly as possible, you know, ideally within, within months if it were possible, which then means a lot more vaccine manufacturing capacity, both for mRNA vaccines and, and others, and I guess a lot of logistical capacity to deliver them if necessary. And I guess... The same is going to be true for other new diseases. And if we want to have this ability to quickly disable any new bioweapon, we need to not only be able to invent the vaccine, I guess it sounds like possibly within days, but then also very quickly manufacture a lot of it and then deliver it into arms, you know, on, on a very, very accelerated timeline. That's absolutely right. And technology is helping us with that too. You no longer have to build a massive vaccine plant to produce vaccines. Again, think about 3D printers, uh, there's a company, it's called cell-free manufacturing. There's a, a company I'm aware of that is building a uh, something about the size of a glove box that can produce, for example, millions of doses of mRNA vaccine in days. Because as you said, the, it's actually your body that does the production of the uh, mRNA vaccine. It's just the message to your cells to produce it that, that you're injecting. And then, for example, there's microneedle patches, vaccine patches that could be mailed to people, right? So that would make the logistics of uh, vaccinating people much, much easier if you could just apply a patch to your arm. You know, new methods to uh, eliminate the need for cold chain for low temperature freezers. All of these are, are technical challenges that we need to work on, but none of them are insurmountable. Yeah, the bottom line for me when I was thinking about this, this recently was just that you might worry that perhaps we would spend too much on vaccine manufacturing or delivery now would build up an excess capacity, perhaps, because we're in this emergency situation. And it would be more than we need. And then say there aren't any new COVID-19 variants and we don't need to create follow-up vaccines. And so we kind of wasted some money. But well, firstly, I think just given the, the, the size of the problem, we should be willing to uh, 
scale up all of this stuff just on the possibility that we might need to, to do a second round of vaccinations. But also, even if we don't use it for COVID, we really want to have this on standby definitely for future for future pandemics. So we never have to live through this again. And so I just feel I I, I have no concern that we're that any country is going to spend too much too much money on vaccine platforms or vaccine manufacturing or vaccine delivery infrastructure, which is really on the margin, the more the better. You're right. I mean compare the the investment we're talking about with the costs of this pandemic. And it's a no-brainer. It really is an ounce of prevention. So you know, we're, we're now using the term the, the biodefense industrial base in the United States. We need that warm base, but it's multi-use, right? During a non-pandemic time, it can be used to produce all sorts of things, but then it needs to have the agility to shift quickly to uh, snuff out a pandemic before it becomes one. The political challenge here is that you know, people have been saying for decades that, you know, we need to stockpile more masks, we need to have more more vaccine manufacturing capacity on standby, we need to be doing all of these things to prepare for a pandemic when it arrives. You know, I was able to figure this out when I was 18. I was saying we need to stockpile more masks. Australia, where I was living, doesn't doesn't have enough masks. It, you know, if I could figure it out when I'm 18, I feel like the government should be able to figure it out <laughs> with all of their analysts. But the challenge then is how do you get politicians and the public to vote to spend this money, given that, you know, if you haven't had a pandemic lately, it's going to seem like it's being wasted. That the challenge here kind of seems more a political economy question or a public choice question than one of figuring out whether it's sensible to do, because it just so clearly is. Yeah, the simple fact is it needs to be a priority. And we're not talking about huge numbers. I mean, I think, you know, the United States, if we invested through the Defense Department and Department of Health and Human Services, about $20 billion a year in this, which when you think about it, the defense budget is currently $750 billion a year. It's actually a pittance in in DOD terms. I think we could solve this problem over about a decade. So it's an investment that is worth making for our defense, but also for our health. Imagine a world where you don't get colds. I mean, that's what we're talking about too. So it would improve day-to-day lives of people. And and that's that's the beauty of this. It's it's a win-win-win investment. Yeah, I wonder whether that's one way that you could make this work commercially is that you have this enormous capacity for uh, manufacturing mRNA vaccines against all of the new cold variants to keep colds under control. And then, of course, at the drop of a hat, that all of that infrastructure can then be converted to producing vaccines against a new, much more severe pandemic if, if necessary. But the cold vaccines kind of has a business model that helps to support all of that infrastructure in the meantime. That's just right. I mean, you have to have a uh, sort of a portfolio approach, but it needs to be kept warm and used day-to-day for routine infectious disease like the common cold. Think about what people spend on over-the-counter drugs to treat the symptoms of common cold. So if there were something that were cheap and easy, a vaccine patch or whatever that you could could use to prevent colds, I, I, I think it would be very popular. So we do need to look at the private sector as perhaps uh, the driver and sustainer of a lot of this effort. But the catalyst has to be governments. I think governments have to make this a priority, but there is plenty of innovation that's happening today in the private sector and in academic laboratories around the world. Yeah, I have massive respect for Pfizer and Moderna that figuring out how to produce so many doses of this new kind of vaccine so so quickly. It's really impressive, but they can't do this on, on their own. They don't have the have the scale that the U.S. government has. And as you're saying, it seems like this is a situation where you the U.S. government like invests ten billion dollars and then gets a trillion dollars worth of like saved economic activity out of it because they haven't had to shut everything down. It's an investment we can't afford not to make. It's cheap, but you know we haven't done it. You're right. You've known about it since you were teenagers, you know, 
I've been working on this problem now for over 30 years, but it's time that we take this threat seriously, make it a national security imperative, not just something that the global health community deals with, and give it the resources that we give to other issues like missile defense, for example, which is a much less likely threat. Okay, so we talked there about the rapid sequencing, early detection and the mRNA vaccines, and I guess other possible new vaccine platforms. Are there any other you know, really important breakthrough technologies that might be able to take biological weapons off the table? Well, there's also personal protective equipment. You know, we have these disposable N95 masks now. Maybe we could come up with something that would purify the air that you're breathing before you breathe it, but not cover your face or your mouth. So yeah, that's just one of uh, one example of, of many things. We need to look at livestock. We need to look at preventing spillover from the animals, you know, so-called zoonotic diseases, into the human population. Hygiene, clean water. I mean, there there are so many things we can do. For example, vector-borne diseases, right? Mosquitoes. There are uh, particular types of mosquitoes that perhaps we should work to eliminate and completely stop the spread of these diseases, ticks and the like. So what we need is a sustained, comprehensive effort involving many countries. Indeed, in some way, every country in the world needs to be involved in this effort. It's like climate, right? This is a global problem. We need to work together as a global community on this problem. It's not something that any one country can solve. Yeah. To what degree are biological threats kind of a core part of what the Pentagon worries about and, and tries to address? Is, is, there, is there someone inside the military national security establishment who views this as, as, as their thing? Well, for five and a half years, I served as that person. I was the senior most person in the Department of Defense with the word biological in my title, and I took it very seriously. But it was always a struggle, frankly. We would have our internal uh, budget battles and and. You know, I always tried to make this more of a priority than it was at the time. I was able to increase our investment, but it still was a generally uh, underfunded effort, roughly about a billion dollars a year, which you know, I think we should increase at least 10 times. Yeah, and this is, this is just kind of a result of the mentality. Uh, pe- people, they, they think about the Pentagon and they think about war and think about national defense and they think World War II and a land war in Asia. They don't think about <laughs> sequencing technology in hospitals. Yeah, and, and that was the um, that was the difficult part because I had to compete against the Joint Strike Fighter for resources. And these kinetic uh, warfare systems have a big constituency. They have companies, members of Congress, and you know the Air Force is run by pilots. The 56-year-old uh, generals all want to have more airplanes. But what it comes down to is we need to change the definition to broaden the definition of national security and defense. It's not just about kinetic warfare. It's much broader than that. And keeping the American people and our allies and partners around the world safe from infectious disease is part of that. Okay, let's let's push on a little bit. This this topic I found can be a little bit controversial, so feel free to pass on it. But um, what do you think is the chance that COVID-19 escaped from a research facility rather than crossing over from a wild or, or captive animal, which has kind of been what, what everyone has assumed was the situation? Is this kind of a one in 100 or a, or a one in 10 possibility? Well, over time, as, as evidence for a natural shred hasn't been produced, we haven't found the intermediate species, you know, the pangolin that was talked about last year. I actually think that the odds 
that this was a laboratory-acquired infection that spread perhaps unwittingly into the community in Wuhan is about a 50% possibility. And let me tell you the reason I I think that. And, And my thinking has changed over the course of the year, although I always thought it should be one of the hypotheses that that we should look very hard at. But there's a type of research called gain-of-function research. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, yeah. Maybe explain it for the audience, though, for those who don't. So, for example, our National Institutes of Health was funding a project in the Netherlands to make highly pathogenic influenza transmissible person-to-person, doing work in ferrets. As a, as a model for humans to in, increase the uh, spread. In fact, in the, in the 1980s, we would have called this type of research biological weapons research. But the uh, global health community, the National Institutes of Health, has supported this research because they think we need to understand the most dangerous viruses, even create them, so we can, can have better vaccines and, and preparedness against pandemics. But there's a huge risk in doing this type of -of gain-of-function research. And we know that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was doing exactly this type of research, some of it which was funded by the National Institutes of Health of the United States, on uh, coronaviruses, bat coronaviruses. So it is possible that in doing this research that one of the workers at that laboratory got sick and went home and Now that we know about asymptomatic spread, perhaps they didn't even have symptoms and uh, spread it it to a neighbor or a storekeeper. So while it seemed uh, an unlikely hypothesis a year ago, over time, more and more evidence uh, leaning in that direction has come out. And it's wrong to dismiss that as uh, as kind of a baseless conspiracy theory. I mean, very, very, very serious scientists like David Relman from Stanford think think we need to take the possibility of a, of a laboratory accident um, seriously. Yeah, I remember back in February last year, I posted on social media just this article that was saying there was a research facility in Wuhan or near Wuhan that was studying COVID, or what do you call it, corona, coronaviruses of, of, this, of this kind. And they were like, oh, it's kind of a coincidence. And people immediately started attacking me for posting this because they said, you're like providing fodder for conspiracy theorists. There's no reason to think it could have come from a lab. You shouldn't even note that this is kind of a surprising coincidence that it would emerge in, in this city. And I guess it's kind of interesting. I feel like it was kind of off limits to talk about this possibility a, a year ago. And I, I guess I'm not quite sure why that, why that is because it, it seems like it's a nothing would be more natural than for it to be a zoonotic disease that jumped over from an animal. Happens all the time, totally normal. But it's also possible, we can't rule it out on his face, that it might have come from a lab. So why can't we just say, well, we don't have any conclusive evidence either way? But people really wanted to take a strong view on that before there was really any particular evidence to, to dismiss either possibility. Yeah, unfortunately, the discussion has become very polarized and politicized. And it didn't help that, you know, Donald Trump was blaming China. And, you know, there were baseless claims that China had deliberately developed this and released it as a biological weapon. That's nonsense. That's not what happened here. But the possibility that it spilled over from gain-of-function research at that laboratory in Wuhan, we can't rule that out. Yeah, I find this kind of thing a bit frustrating when um, 
you get authorities or, or groups of people kind of circling the wagons and really taking a strong position before they have conclusive evidence to back it up because it, it creates this horrible risk that like what if at some future time evidence does come out that it leaked from a lab? I mean, that's just also a, poss- it's a possibility. There was no way to really rule that out last January or February. And then you've just completely shot your credibility when you could have all the time just been saying, we think it probably came from an animal, a uh, white animal, because that's the most natural explanation, but we don't know. <laughs> just like be honest. And that approach that you described is what scientists are trained to do, right? To gather evidence and then, you know, methodically come to their conclusions. But instead, there was kind of a knee-jerk response early on, completely discounting this as a, as a possibility. And of course, you know, another indicator that's concerning is Chinese government behavior, the way they they covered up and, you know, even the, the this latest WHO visit, a so-called investigation into the origin, it's clear that they were not given full access or transparency into the laboratory records, into their genetic sequence banks. And, you know, the information is, is, is there to learn more about this, but at this point, it's pretty hard to come by. Okay, yeah, another question on COVID-19 before I get myself into too much trouble on this one. Are there any other kind of key investments or policies that you would recommend to the Biden administration to prevent the next COVID-19 that that we haven't already covered? Well, I I think, you know, since we have spoken about biological weapons, we also need to strengthen the Biological Weapons Convention and and restore the taboo against the use of of biological weapons. So I, I think we need to, you know, very aggressively look for ways to strengthen the the Biological Weapons Convention, whether that's through some kind of an inspection capability or increased transparency, especially among high containment laboratories around the world. Universality of the treaty is important. We need every country to become a member of that. So I think I've suggested that perhaps uh, President Biden, if you remember, President Obama gave a very moving speech in uh, April of 2009 in Prague, Czech Republic, talking about nuclear weapons and nuclear dangers and outlining specific policies, and including the uh, launch of a series of nuclear security summits around the world, which we had two in the United States, one in Seoul and another in the Netherlands. I think uh, President Biden should, should go to Geneva and address a joint meeting of the biological Weapons Convention uh, states parties, as well as the World Health Organization together and lay out an ambitious set of policies for countries to work together on this common problem of epidemics, pandemics, and reducing the risk of deliberate biological weapons threats together, and then perhaps offering to host the first biosecurity summit to get leaders engaged, to get the investments necessary to you know, develop the technologies and, and deploy widely in the developing world and around the world these technologies that can make us all safer. It probably wasn't that hard to find things that the US government was doing under the Trump administration that regarding COVID-19 that were pretty baffling. But is there is there anything that kind of baffles you about what we're doing now? We just, you can't understand why we're making a mistake that we are? No, I, I don't think we're making any big mistakes. I think we're recovering from some mistakes, but let's give the last administration some credit where it really deserves it. Operation Warp Speed, and I, and I know the people leading that effort, has been an extraordinary achievement. I mean, it's going to deliver a vaccine to every American 
within a record amount of time. I mean, they took the risk of, of wasting money, right, of pre-manufacturing vaccines even before they had been approved for use. They did this in parallel. So that allowed us to compress the times. And you know, while there have been some glitches in, in getting distribution going, it's now, uh, you know, we're up to almost 2 million doses being delivered daily. Uh, it's an extraordinary achievement. And uh, it's thanks not to the politicians, but to the, uh, to the scientists, to the doctors, the professionals uh, throughout our government, the biodefense experts who work on these problems day to day. And we need a whole new generation to step into their shoes to um, you know, fill that void. Yeah. If we want to use mRNA vaccines in the way that you've described to you know, wipe out new diseases really quickly and take bioweapons off the table as, a, as an option, are we going to have, we would have to change a bunch of things about the regulatory structure around vaccines, right? Because it seems like at the moment, even in an emergency like COVID-19, there's meaningful delays that are introduced by the need to prove that these things work and prove that they're safe to a really high standard and then, you know, analyze the data multiple times and get everyone on board and then approve them. It seems like we haven't been able to speed it up as much as I might have hoped, given the sheer urgency of the situation that we're in now. But if we're dealing with a bioweapon, then like every day counts. And so we'll have to hopefully find some ways to to speed up the, the regulatory approval process. Does that, does that sound right? Yes, it does. So, so that's the goal, right, is to compress the times that it takes to respond to an infectious disease. And part of that is investing in regulatory science, coming up with better models with you know, human organs on a chip so we don't have to do uh, testing in humans, using artificial intelligence to make discovery of drugs faster and more effective. So there's a lot we can do and part of that needs to be to reduce the uh, regulatory time lag. And, you know, traditionally, funding in regulatory science has been neglected. So a lot of things have accelerated because of the pandemic. We've had no choice. But we need to make sure that, that these you know, bright spots, that they become institutionalized and, and that they continue and that we increase our investment in these areas. Yeah, I've only heard celebration of Operation Warp Speed. It seems like it was just a fantastic success that's going to save so many lives and, and get hopefully get life back to normal much faster than it would have otherwise. So if, if I had to put something to you that, that baffles me a little bit about the, the US response right now is that the FDA or the US government still hasn't approved the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. And I guess we're on like the, the 18th of February here, whereas it's been being delivered in the UK for well over a month now and millions of people have received it and it seems like it's saving lives. And we kind of know that the safety must be extreme, is extremely high because millions have received it and we've seen no signs of common adverse events. Yeah, it kind of surprises me that there isn't more people clamoring to get all of the millions of doses of this vaccine that are sitting around, you know, into people's arms, given that it's being scaled up and rolled out in lots of other countries and it's going really well. Yeah, I think the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is going to be approved in the next week or so. We definitely need more than the two mRNA vaccines that were the first out of the gate. And, you know, this, this tells us we need better synchronization among our regulatory authorities around the world. It is kind of surprising that, uh, to me, it would seem natural that in an emergency situation, if you have a treatment or a vaccine that a country like the UK has approved, and, you know, the UK is no slouch in terms of its checking of, of safety and its checking of efficacy, that if, if it's permitted and indeed being scaled up on a mass, like massively by the UK government, that it would at least be legal to provide it to people in, in the US, even if 
US government isn't actively promoting it and paying for it itself, that you would at least make it not a crime <laughs> to, to sell and deliver this this product that that you could fly in theory to the UK and then and then get. <laughs> it's kind of it's a it's a funny situation. Yeah. No, that's right. So so a system of let's call it regulatory reciprocity, I think makes a lot of sense. Because after all, the, the UK regulatory authorities are on a par with, with the US Food and Drug Administration. As, as is the European medical authority. So, yeah, we should have a system of reciprocity, whereas where if one country approves it for use, in this case, emergency use, that it's then acceptable in every country that's part of this group of, of countries that maintain such high regulatory standards. Yeah. Amen. I'll, uh, I'll stick up uh, some links in the show notes for this episode to some academics who have been uh, advocating regulatory reciprocity for, for a number of years and <laughs> have been talking about it on a renewed basis, given the situation that we're in now. Let's move on from COVID and talk about nukes for a bit. First off, I've had this kind of longstanding confusion about the issue of nuclear winter. My impression is that there's some natural scientists who come at this question from kind of far outside the national security community who think that it's that's a real threat and, uh, and a real likelihood. Though admittedly, it seems like it's, it's a pretty small community of people who study climate and study physics and so on who, who have looked into it in, in any great detail. But I get the sense that there's this more skepticism or just kind of disinterest maybe from, from people who are approaching this from the national security or nuclear weapons point of view, that it's not talked about that much. And relative to the, you know, the stakes that, that seem to be on the table there, where you know, it's a question, if we use nuclear weapons, would it, be, would it like lead to billions more people dying because of this nuclear winter? It would seem like it would be a really high priority, but doesn't get a lot of take up as far as I can tell from, from the Pentagon. Yeah, to what extent do people in U.S. defense circles take nuclear winter seriously, and do they think about it at all? We we do, and, and we do take it seriously. But you're right, there has not been as much investment in recent years in, in the types of research that led to the conclusions in the, in the 1980s regarding nuclear winter. And our modeling capabilities have gotten so much better. So we should, we should invest again in, in those types of studies. But there is no question that a massive use of nuclear weapons would cause a nuclear winter. As I understand it, kind of the crux of the disagreement is how long it would last, which kind of comes down to how high the particulates from the burning cities and forests go. Because if they go high enough, then they tend to just stay up in the upper atmosphere for a very long time. But if they're in the lower atmosphere, then they kind of rain out and fall down. Have I got that right? All of that can be modeled. And the conclusions of the the work that was done previously have not changed. So this this is a real concern. And and this is why this is just one of many reasons. You know, <laughs> I mean let's talk about the <laughs> lives if we that needed would, more. the lives. <laughs> right. And let's talk about the lives that would be lost with the use of any nuclear weapon. People who would be killed immediately. So we need to make sure that nuclear weapons are never ever used. Yeah. So, so you think there's kind of not that much dispute that, well, so obviously it would have like a large effect on the weather, but, but you think it, we're talking like many years and, and a lot of people starving, that that is, that is the most likely outcome of a major nuclear exchange? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it would be a, a near species ending event. And do other people in, or other people who've worked in the Pentagon or people who think about nuclear policy, is that, is that their view as well? I think it's generally accepted, yes. It's not something we, we dwell on or talk about very much. And, and like I said, there has not been much work uh, funded in this area in recent years. But I think it's general conventional wisdom that a large exchange of nuclear weapons would cause a nuclear winter. Okay, yeah, well, 
I guess, yeah, it's good to know that, <laughs> that people believe that. It seems, seems better to maybe err on the side of caution with that one. Yeah. Different topic. <laughs> I've read different accounts of how practical it is for the president to kind of just unilaterally launch nuclear weapons without any provocation or any particular reason. I'm curious to know, had Trump ordered a nuclear strike during his last two weeks in office, what do you think is the probability that it, that it would actually have, have happened? It would have been a, a unique case in American history. He definitely had the authority. And in our system, one man, one woman has that authority at any given time. So I think it is uh, very, very possible that it would have happened. Yeah. I suppose you could imagine someone, I guess, I think the Secretary of Defense maybe can stop the order being passed down, at least for, at least they can delay no. it. No? No, not actually, actually not. And, and I participated in, in many such exercises when I was at the Pentagon. Um, no, the president deals you know, through a command center directly with U.S. Strategic Command. He gets advice. He gets advice from the secretary, but the secretary has no approval or disapproval authority in in, uh, the nuclear command and control. Okay. So it's possible, like it's conceivable that people would have just refused to do it, but you would be requiring people to be completely insubordinate and to go against all of their training. That's the only way that it would be stopped, even if Trump had done it on the 19th of January. Yeah. I mean, in theory, if, if they quickly came to a legal interpretation that it was against the laws of war and would be illegal, an illegal act, they could refuse the order, but I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't count, count on that. Yeah. Could they conclude that only someone who wasn't of sound mind would be giving this order and rejected on that basis? Or is that not part of the equation? It's really not. I mean, that's where the 25th Amendment would kick in. And, and we saw that the vice president was unwilling to invoke that. Yeah, it's disturbing. I guess with, with the new Biden administration, it seems like negotiations with Russia about nuclear weapons are kind of back on the table or people might have another go. What are the top priorities that they should be pursuing? And maybe what have they already done? I think they've, they've renewed one important treaty already, right? Yeah. So the New START Treaty, which the Trump administration was reluctant to extend, would have expired on the 5th of February. But Presidents Biden and Putin agreed in accordance with the, the ratified treaty to extend it for a period of five years until 2026. So that's already been accomplished but it had to be accomplished in the first weeks of the Biden administration because the expiration date was the 5th of February. And that treaty holds down the number of kind of active nuclear weapons that the, that the countries have, and I guess also allows some inspection. Is that right? Yes. It limits deployed nuclear weapons on either side to 1,550 and delivery systems to 700. And it includes a, a very robust system of mutual inspections that gives each side uh, predictability and confidence in the disposition of the other country's nuclear forces on any given day. Okay, that seems great. What else? What else should the Biden administration be be pursuing? Is there is there further that we can that we can take this over the next four years? Yeah, well, I think the the goal of arms control should be to enhance. U.S. security, mutual security, and global security. It's not some, you know, Pollyannish disarmament thing. It is focused on enhancing our national security, and other countries will have that same selfish interest in enhancing their national security. So the goal should be, first and foremost, to reduce the risk of nuclear war. And what 
what is it that makes nuclear war, you know, the risk of nuclear war high? I think it's these smaller so-called low-yield systems on ambiguous delivery platforms like cruise missiles that are used for conventional weapons and nuclear weapons. It's these smaller, more tactical systems that are the most dangerous type of nuclear weapon. And so we should focus on eliminating both bilaterally and, and perhaps among all nuclear weapons possessor states, these most dangerous types of nuclear weapons. And the reason those weapons are so dangerous is not that they do a particularly large amount of damage. I mean, I'm sure they do a lot of damage directly. But the the problem is that they create this kind of gray zone where you could actually imagine a country using them because it's not clear that that would be a full nuclear provocation and cause mutually assured destruction in the same way that using ICBMs would. So you've now got this area of ambiguity that then could allow accidental escalation. Exactly. We used to have a bright red line between nuclear operations and conventional operations. Well, there's been an intentional blurring of the line between conventional and nuclear war. And that is very, very dangerous. It's something that started with President Putin's policies on nuclear weapons, but but then was mimicked by the Trump administration. So we need to walk away from that concept. Indeed, it's this very same danger that Presidents Reagan and Gorbachev focused on when they adopted the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty in 1987. It was those smaller systems with short flight times that could be used in Europe, not the intercontinental ballistic missiles that the INF Treaty focused on, including uh, ground-launched cruise missiles, which fly low, they're undetectable, unlike ballistic missiles, which have a big signature upon launch, and your early warning systems can detect them. Cruise missiles are are slow, quiet, low to the ground, and stealthy. So those are the ones that I believe are most likely to cause a nuclear war. I see. Okay. So the key issue is if you developed cruise missiles that could carry full-on hydrogen bombs, then it puts everyone else in this very skittish position, this very nerve-wracking position, where they could suddenly be have this surprise attack where they have almost no warning because all these cruise missiles have been coming at them. And then having your adversary be so nervous about your nuclear posture and about your capabilities and like whether you could launch a surprise attack just makes them much more likely either to attack you prematurely or to like mistake a plane or something else for a cruise missile and then think, well, this could be a nuclear weapon. We just have to, we have to respond. We have to go all out in, re- in reply to this. It, it's, it's very destabilizing, it sounds like. It's very destabilizing. These types of nuclear weapons, and, and I'm especially focused on nuclear-armed cruise missiles, whether sea-launched, air-launched, or ground-launched, that are the most dangerous. I'll, I'll give you the Pentagon perspective. Yeah, yeah. What's the, what's the case for any of this? <laughs> yeah. Well, the people who are responsible for defending the United States against nuclear attack, what is it we worry most about? It's a, uh, a Russian attack submarine with a sea-launched cruise missile off the coast of Washington and the Atlantic launching a decapitating strike on Washington, taking out the U.S. government. That's the thing we worried most about, the so-called you know, bolt from the blue. And, and in Moscow, they have the same concern about our air-launched cruise missiles and our sea-launched cruise missiles. Now, the United States doesn't have nuclear-armed sea-launched cruise missiles, although we have a program underway that Trump started to develop them. 
I think we need to get away from that. The United Kingdom doesn't have sea launch cruise missiles or nuclear ones. France doesn't have nuclear sea launch cruise missiles. China doesn't have nuclear sea launch cruise missiles. So let's focus on keeping nuclear weapons off of these systems that are used routinely in conventional warfare. Yeah, I... So, so I studied economics and we tend to think that people kind of act in their self-interest, but it seems crazy. Like, yeah, one of your papers just kind of opens with, we are like in the era of a new nuclear arms race. And I'm like, who is benefiting from this? Is the US going to be more secure because it's developed these cruise missiles and these tactical weapons? It doesn't seem like they serve that much of a national security function. And at the same time, they're hugely destabilizing and increase the risk of the total destruction of the United States. It's just quite, quite baffling to me. Yeah, it's, it's a twisted logic. And it goes like this. Well, Moscow might not believe that we're going to launch an all-out nuclear strike against them. So in order to have a credible deterrent, we have to have these lesser options. But it's the pursuit of these lesser options that lowers the threshold to using nuclear weapons and makes nuclear weapons more likely. And the idea that you can have a small-scale, so-called limited nuclear war with just these smaller systems perhaps just in Europe or just in Asia and not in Russia or the United States, it's wrong to think that you could control escalation of any, you know, once the nuclear taboo is broken and in the fog of a even a small nuclear war, it's just minutes before that would potentially escalate to a full-out nuclear exchange. Yeah, I've got multiple <laughs> problems with the reasoning that they're putting forward there. One thing is, even if Putin isn't completely sure that the US would retaliate with a you know, full-out launch of all of its ICBMs, how confident does he have to be that they wouldn't in order to be willing to launch a first strike? It seems like given that the outcome of being wrong would be complete destruction of your society, that like a 50-50% chance probably is quite a substantial deterrent to begin with. And then, yeah, as, as you're saying, like having these intermediate options just makes them makes them far more likely to be used. I mean, another thing is we've had this kind of mutually assured destruction ICBM standoff situation for many, many decades now. And while we might not have been able to know when we set it up that it would be stable, we now have quite a bit of experience to suggest that it is stable. So why not just leave it at that? <laughs> why, why, why mess with it? <laughs> no, you're exactly right. Exactly right. He just has to have a doubt that we may use these intercontinental sea and air you know, ballistic missiles against him. That's enough to deter the use of nuclear weapons against us. President Biden is likely to adopt what's called a, a sole purpose policy. So in other words, to declare that the only purpose of nuclear weapons is to deter a nuclear attack against the United States and its allies. And once you have that doctrine, that declaratory policy, then you don't need these smaller systems. All you need are the ballistic missiles. Let's talk about that for a minute. I'm, I'm curious to come back to these tactical weapons in a, in a second. But yeah, back when you were in the Obama administration, it undertook a nuclear posture review, which is this process in which has decided how the US should be trying to use nuclear weapons for national security goals. And as I understand it, Obama was interested in making a declaration like this, that the US wouldn't use nuclear weapons for first strike purposes. They would only be for deterrence and only be for retaliation. But ultimately, that change wasn't made. Perhaps it was people at the Pentagon who persuaded him, him not to do it. Why didn't they do it then? And why is it possible that it will happen now under Biden? When that nuclear posture review was conducted, you know, Bob Gates was Secretary of Defense. He was fairly conservative on these issues. 
Syria had a massive chemical weapons stockpile, and some people argued that we needed uh, nuclear weapons to deter uh, Syrian use of, of uh, chemical weapons against its neighbors. And then, you know, what people don't remember so much about the nuclear posture review that, that uh, we did in the Obama administration is that it retired the sea-launched, nuclear-armed sea-launched cruise missile called the TLAM-N in that review, and those have since been dismantled. So we got rid of that entire class of nuclear weapon. And we also failed to make a decision on whether or not to replace our air-launched cruise missile. There's a little sentence buried on page 26 that states, a decision will be made whether, and if so, how, to replace the air-launched cruise missile. And so Obama never really made that decision. I'm confident that had Hillary Clinton won the election in 2016, she would have eliminated the program to replace the air-launched cruise missile. It's called the LRSO, the Long-Range Standoff Weapon. And that's still a uh, pretty advanced research program, but I think it's one of the programs that President Biden should uh, immediately terminate. Yeah, what changes did you want in 2010? I'm guessing that you would have been in favor of, you know, taking first strikes off the table. Were you frustrated when some of the policies that you supported weren't weren't taken up at that point? Yeah, I mean, you know, we fought our battles uh, internally. I very much supported President Obama's vision that he laid out in his Prague speech. And, um, you know, there is sort of a very uh, hard resistance to making any changes in our nuclear posture. And that's where it takes direct presidential leadership and presidential involvement. Is it just that the culture of these kind of institutions is is just very conservative by nature? So it takes like a push to get anything changed, or is it that they you know actively have a have a view <laughs> that that these changes are, are are bad and and push against it because they think it's dangerous? It's both. It's both. And remember, um, most of the people involved in in this subset of, of national security issues that's all they've ever done their entire careers is work on nuclear weapons. So uh, they have a very parochial view of things. But these are the president's weapons, right? The president sets the requirement. It's not a military weapon, per, you know, a normal military weapon. So it's very easy for somebody like President Biden, who has deep expertise on nuclear weapons and arms control, to just direct the changes. I think that's the way he should do it. He should... Um, make his own decisions on what is the appropriate nuclear weapons force we need for a a policy that makes the sole purpose of nuclear weapons to prevent a nuclear attack on the United States and its allies, and then direct an arsenal that is sufficient for that policy. How probable do you think a great power war between the US and China is over the next 100 years? And given the stakes there, should that kind of be our number one security concern, perhaps setting aside biological weapons or something? Well, you know, China is a nuclear weapons power. So having a direct war between the United States and China makes no sense for either country. As Reagan and Gorbachev stated, a nuclear war can never be won and must never be fought. It can't be won and must never be fought. So I think the idea of the United States having a direct military engagement with China is um, has to be unthinkable. Is a mistake. It should be unthinkable for that very reason. Indeed, we never thought during the Cold War that we would have a conventional war against the Soviet Union. We were 
you know, planning for a nuclear war. How could you have a conventional war against the Soviet Union when they had all those nuclear weapons? It just wasn't in our planning. So I think we need to avoid misunderstandings that could lead to a direct conflict between the two countries. We need to have, you know, be resolute and have a very strong, credible, clear policy of defending our allies like Japan, South Korea, from any Chinese aggression. I guess t- Taiwan's the tricky one now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we need to be very clear that a Chinese attack, a military attack on Taiwan would be totally unacceptable. See, that's the direction you would go is setting a, a hard line in the sand rather than, I mean, an alternative approach would just be to back down on that one and accept that at some point China will take over Taiwan and, and try to avoid a direct massive conflict that way. But alternatively, you can go, go all in. No, we just have to be clear. Mm, okay. We have to be clear. I mean, that, that's what allowed the Korean War to happen. We, we were ambiguous. Yeah, I'll, I'll link to some history on the, how the Korean War in part was started by, by that kind of ambiguity about whether, whether help would be offered. To what extent do you think lobbying by weapons manufacturers kind of causes the US to develop or buy weapon systems that don't really offer value for money or, or even harmful, like some of, the, some of the new possible delivery systems for, for nuclear weapons that we've been talking about? It seems like there's, there's a bit of a mystery why we're so interested in developing and, and <laughs> buying these things. I wonder if there's people who do make money out of it. Is that a possible explanation? Well, it's a big factor. There's no question. President Eisenhower was right that there is a, a defense industrial enterprise that promotes these big ticket platforms. And they have tremendous support in Congress. The major defense industries that manufacture these big Cold War weapon systems have enormous lobbying programs. They fund a lot of the think tanks in Washington. So it, it is. It's, a, it's a, a very, very strong coalition that is constantly fighting to get more funding for these expensive uh, programs. Are there any other weapon systems like these kind of nuclear cruise missiles that you want to call out as things that should be defunded and just that they're not offering value for money from a security point of view? Well, let me be clear from the opposite side. I'm not somebody who says we should get rid of all nuclear weapons tomorrow. I, in fact, I support our current triad of nuclear weapons. I think we should be investing in our uh, strategic ballistic missile submarines. We should maintain in a more efficient way, a more economical way, our ICBM force, at least uh, two wings of our ICBM force. We should be investing in the next generation stealth bomber, the B-21 Raider. So I support a strong deterrent force, but it's these smaller systems that like nuclear-armed cruise missiles, that are so very, very dangerous. So we can save money and be safer by uh, canceling these programs and also negotiating arms control arrangements that limit, you know, cap and eliminate these programs in other countries too. So I think that's, you know, that's where I would focus. I would also invest a lot of money in nuclear command and control so it's a secure, survivable system. So I'm not saying that we should just, you know, cut our nuclear weapons program to the bone, but we need to make smart investments and have a, a smart strategy that's affordable because we have so many other dangers like biological weapons and pandemics that we need also to invest defense dollars in. Yeah. Uh, supersonic weapons? That's something where I've heard a similar story that some people think that they could be very destabilizing because they could allow a faster nuclear attack. 
Is that, is that kind of in the same category as the cruise missiles? Well, nuclear-armed uh, hypersonic weapons, I, I do believe, are, although the Russian, the current Russian system is on top of a an intercontinental ballistic missile. It's just the, the reentry vehicles that are hypersonic. So that's not as worrisome as the potential for countries to put nuclear weapons on shorter range hypersonic weapons. I don't think we should go there. We don't have any current plans to do that. And uh, we should also work with, with other countries to make sure they don't. Drones also, we should keep nuclear weapons off of drones. Sounds, sounds, sounds very correct. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll stick up a link to some of the papers and articles you've written on this on this general topic if people would like to like to learn more. Let's push on as we head to the finish line into some career advice, uh, perhaps uh, concrete suggestions for people. I asked around in preparing for this interview, and the word on the street is that you're, you've just been a really great mentor to uh, up-and-comers in the chemical, biological, radiation, nuclear control space. And I guess, yeah, these days you have a big focus, I've heard, on educating the next generation of people to carry on the work that you spent most of your career on. Most people will be listening to this out of general interest, but there's definitely going to be a contingent out there of perhaps hundreds of listeners who are thinking, you know, maybe I could use my career to do something to defuse the risk from nuclear or biological weapons, kind of following your footsteps. Among people in the next generation who have really flourished, what, what are the archetypal kind of good decisions they've made or practices they've followed? What, what, what suggestions do you have? Well, I think, you know, first, wanting to be part of something larger, wanting, you know, there's so much interest in, in for example, in climate change. The younger generation really is leading that movement. We need to have similar interest in uh, preventing nuclear war, preventing the whole range of biological threats. And there are so many opportunities to get involved. So I think what it takes is somebody who wants to be a public servant, not necessarily working for the government, but but working in public service, whether it's in, in journalism or science or you know making a contribution to solving the world's hardest problems has to be what motivates people to to go into these fields. Are there any kind of valuable or notable mistakes that, that you made over the course of your career that listeners could potentially learn something from? I've observed mistakes. So everything I've described, everything we've talked about today, some of the, you know, the accomplishments that were made in preventing catastrophe after the breakup of the Soviet Union, these were all team sports. You know, the government doesn't work. It's not, it's not individuals. And it's all done in teams. So, you know, that's, that's part of it. So occasionally you meet somebody who's not a good team player, uh, who's more focused on, on themselves than on the mission. And, and, you know, we shouldn't be, uh, if you're going into this, you know, the, the true public servant isn't so much worried about themselves or their own careers. What motivates them and what they care about is, is the mission. It's making the world safer. Yeah, that's inter- it's a, that's a message I've heard again and again from people I've interviewed who've worked in the in the U.S. government is that it requires yeah a team spirit and a willingness not to be narcissistic or put yourself first. That it's very cooperative and people people care about what kind of personality you're you're, you're projecting. That you seem like you're a good person to work with, and the ability to network and build partnerships within the government. In, in my case, within the Defense Department, which is a massive operation across the U.S. government with interagency partners. I worked very closely, for example, with the CDC director in Atlanta on the whole range of biological threat issues. And then internationally, so many of these problems are global. We have to work with our allies and partners around the world on these common problems. So it's building the relationships, the trust, the respect. It's being a good listener. It's very important. 
Imagine that you were kind of 18 and starting your career over again today. What kind of plan would you have and what things might you might you be applying for? Well, that's an interesting question. I hadn't thought about that. I've had such a privileged career and I continue to be able to work on these issues that I'm so passionate about that I don't think I would really change anything. But the 21st century is definitely going to be the, the century of biology. If, if the 20th century was the nuclear age, the 21st century is going to be the, the century of biology. So I would be so excited to be involved in biotechnology, bioengineering as a field, because so many things, so many things are going to be done to improve our lives, whether it's environmental issues, climate issues. Biology will answer so many of those problems for us. And you know, now that it's progressed, it's going to be just the largest growth sector of our economy moving forward. We have a term in Washington, we refer to it as the bioeconomy. And it's going to be everything from, from nutrition to meat substitutes to energy solutions to better batteries, and in addition to all the, the medical countermeasures so we can live free of disease. So that's an area that, you know, having it to do all over again, I might get involved in, in the biological sciences. I see. That's interesting. Are there any particular kind of opportunities for kind of study or fellowships or professional advancement that you'd like to give a shout out to? Oh, yes. So the Council on Strategic Risks, councilonstrategicrisks.org, where I work as a senior fellow. Last year, we launched the Ending Bioweapons Fellowship. We've had five extraordinary people involved this year, and we will be advertising for the next year's fellowship probably in March of this year. That's a great opportunity. But there are so many uh, ways to get involved through fellowships. Take the Foreign Service exam. It's free to uh, American citizens. But in addition to government service, there are so many ways to get involved at the local level, in journalism. I actually started my career in journalism, which was very rewarding. Science. I mean, there's just so many, so many opportunities, but uh, the AAAS fellowship is a good one for scientists who have decided they don't want to spend the rest of their lives at the bench. They want to get more involved in policy issues and government. So there are a lot of these fellowships. The Open Philanthropy Project has a scholarship program to encourage people to go into this field. So, you know, I'm particularly interested in getting uh, the younger generation engaged in issues of biosecurity and preventing nuclear disaster. You're involved in setting up the Emerging Leaders in Biosecurity Fellowship, if I recall? Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. So the LB program, in DOD, everything has to have an acronym that stands for the <laughs> Emer Emerging Leaders in Biosecurity. So it's interesting, you know, in, in my five and a half years serving as President Obama's Assistant, Assistant Secretary of Defense, I oversaw, you know, billions of dollars of programs every year. But uh, perhaps one of the most useful things I did was start a little program for, I think it was about $100,000 a year, called Emerging Leaders in Biosecurity. And uh, it's now in its 10th year or so. It's, it's run by the uh, Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, and it's a great networking opportunity for people who are interested in biology and public health and global health 
but want to learn more about about biosecurity and government. And uh, they also uh, have a selection process that they advertise once a year. But it's probably been one of the most successful things I did in my five and a half years serving as Assistant Secretary of Defense. And it was one of the cheapest investments we made. There's a whole generation now, 10 years of people who've been through this program, who have their own network, their own alumni group, who are now leading the U.S. government biosecurity enterprise, whether at the Department of Health and Human Services, Homeland Security, different parts of the Defense Department. They're now all over. They've sort of taken over this field for the U.S. government, and it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, we've, we've had some coverage of that in previous episodes, which we'll, we'll stick up a link to. And yeah, we've also got a little bit of writing on the AAAS fellowship. So we'll stick up links to, to those resources in the show notes. What's the biggest downside of working in this kind of you know, our foreign policy, national security, U.S. government work? I, I'm guessing maybe I might not be a great fit for this because like, uh, as you've heard, I like to express my opinions. I'm active on social media. I'm thinking maybe that's a little bit incompatible with working in government. I don't see a lot of downsides. I mean, there are frustrations. It tends to be a little bit hierarchical which is why I liked working in small embassies in places like Almaty, Kazakhstan, and not in you know big embassies like London, because you get a lot more responsibility at a younger age. You know, the frustrations, for example, you know, little things like uh, when you go on a trip, you can't just go to uh, the kayak and book your trip and pay for it and get reimbursed. You have to use the government contract travel agency, which is terrible. And you know, so it's little things like that. Obviously, for, for the, the types of work that I was involved in, it was required to have a security clearance. And so along with that privilege comes the responsibility and, and rules that, that go along with that. But, you know, these small frustrations and, and, and down, absurdities, too. Like, um, I'll give you an example. Um, because of cybersecurity... In my last years at the Pentagon, I had this uh, little government BlackBerry, and it was terrible. It was just really awful, and it was not just bad because BlackBerries aren't very good, but it was uh, disabled. Uh, The camera was disabled because they didn't want people to have the ability to take pictures inside the Pentagon. You weren't allowed to download apps onto it because of cybersecurity. So when I uh, retired after 30 years of government service, one of the first things I did was buy an iPhone. And it just opened a whole world to me. It was unbelievable. And, and But because I had never had my own personal phone, I had always had a, a government-issued phone. I didn't realize what I was missing. So it's those little things. Even today, during COVID, you know, everybody's doing Zoom meetings back and forth. When I have some meetings with the Defense Department, they, they use conference calls with no video because they don't have security approval to use Zoom. So it's these little absurdities that, you know, they're, they're bothersome. But again, if you stay focused on the mission and you're involved in big things, the rewards far, far outweigh the frustrations. People have suggested that you've been a, a good mentor to some people in their careers. Do you have any advice for people who are, yeah, getting, you know, into, into their 20s, into their 30s and looking to, to advance? Like, how do they find people further up the chain who can help them make the most of their careers? Well, it's actually pretty easy. I mean, just about everybody likes to to help people and be a mentor and, and share their experiences. And, and it, it, it comes naturally because, as I mentioned, everything in government is done in teams. So just being part of a team with, with you know, mid-career and, and more senior people, you're part of that team and you learn from them day to day, whether they're formally your mentor or not. 
And one sort of last piece of advice that I would share that I give people when they're starting out is lunch. <laughs> Go on. It's really important that you don't sit at your desk and eat lunch, that you take the time outside of meetings to meet people because it's all about your network and the people. And so take the time to get to know your colleagues as people and uh, in, in formal settings and don't just talk about work because that's how you succeed in government and make teamwork really magic. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess government has a stereotype perhaps of being less social or less fun. But this is this is another thing that I've heard really consistently is that people do spend a lot of time socializing and making friends and building these relationships. And that's just an incredibly important part of building a career, which is, a, I guess, yeah, a good, a good thing to find out. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I know you've got a, got a meeting to get off to in just a minute or two. But one final thing I was curious about is you mentioned in one of the podcasts I listened to in the preparation that you're kind of in retirement. But then I look at all of the things you're doing and I'm like, <laughs> is, do people like you ever really retire? Or is it just kind of the semi-retirement where you just, you just go to a higher state of being, perhaps where you're <laughs> still working, but you call it retirement? Uh, what's, yeah, what's the story? I, I don't know. Well, I don't play golf for one. Um, <laughs> so I'm not doing that every day. I. I just, um, I'm passionate about the issues that I worked on in government. And after all that time working on these issues, I, I want to stay involved and stay engaged and, and mentor and encourage and inspire people also to get involved in these things. But I, you know, we want to make a difference, right? And that doesn't, that doesn't stop just because I, I turned in my retirement papers after 30 years of federal service. So there are a lot of ways I find that I can still contribute and keep uh, keep active, and and I like I like being busy. Yeah, you've been so forthright here, but uh, I guess I've noticed that people are, when they leave government they tend to get more and more upfront about their views and more and more honest about their, their views as they uh, as they get further into their retirement. Can we look forward to an even more frank <laughs> uh, and, and and open Andy Andy Weber as you uh, as you get older? Oh, I think I've always been pretty open and honest, and and. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I speak freely of my opinions. Maybe I'm a little bit known for that, but yeah. it's nice not having uh, restrictions and having to worry about speaking for the Department of Defense or for the President of the United States. Now I'm just speaking for Andy Weber, so it's much easier. Yeah, you did have that reputation. That's why we uh, decided to interview you rather than someone else. And I, I think I think we got what we came for. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Rob. It's really been a wonderful chat. My guest today has been uh, Andy Weber. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Andy. Well, thank you. And thanks for what you're doing with 80,000 Hours. It's great. And I hope you inspire so many people to get involved and make a difference in our lives. So thank you. If you want to hear more about preventing pandemics, we have got a lot to offer you. I'd recommend first heading over to the regular 80,000 Hours podcast feed and checking out our episode with one of the world's leading health security experts. That's episode 27, Tom Inglesby on how to prevent global catastrophic biological risks. Or if you'd love to hear more about nuclear security, check out our episode with the man whose legendary Pentagon papers helped end the nuclear war and the Nixon presidency. That's episode 43, Daniel Ellsberg on the creation of nuclear doomsday machines. For other related conversations, you could also check out episode 65, Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins on eight years pursuing WMD arms control. Episode 70, Dr. Cassidy Nelson on the 12 best ways to stop the next pandemic. And episode 77, Professor Mark Lipsich on whether we're winning or losing against COVID-19. You can find those on our main podcast feed, which you can find by typing 80,000 hours into your podcasting app. All right, I hope you'll stick around for the next episode in this series.